Welcome to Cocktails and Cadavers, the podcast where two tipsy girls tell you terrible stories all while forcing their friends to drink and listen along. This week, it's the part two of the Boys on the Track series. Last week, we ended with the conspiracy about the airport and the cocaine and drug drops, and you're going to find out that it's going to get a lot crazier. So without further ado, Boys on the Track part two. Okay. Okay. Key characters. Keith Coney. He was a friend of the boys, um, and his mom knew that he knew something. He had said, like, I know something about the deaths, but, like, I'm too scared to talk. And so eventually he told his dad what happened because he was really close with his dad, but he was still too scared to talk to the police, and this is why. So he told his father that he had been out with the boys near Shobe Road, which is where – it was near, like, where they were found on the tracks – and that the boys were approached by two police officers. Keith, who was on a motorcycle, flees and leaves the boys behind. So he then believes that the police attacked and killed the boys. That's he was with them. Police showed up. He fle- He fled. Boys died. Oh, hold on. Yep. Keith. Keith. A was, friend of the boys was with the boys. Was with them the night they died when they were doing some like teenage boy stuff, and police show up. At this point, I'm guessing they were probably smoking pot. Right. And the guy, Keith, is on his motorcycle. The boys are walking. And he freaks out and flees. Because the cops show up. Last, he knows. The cop shows up. Next morning, the boys are dead. Okay? Shit. Okay. So Keith's mom goes to visit her other son who is in, like, the state jail or something. And she goes to see him. And while she's there, she meets a man named... Mike Crook, who was the former manager of a nightclub in the area called Gigi's, he claims that he had a customer who came in and told him that while he was waiting at the grocery store, I think he was spying on his wife to see if she was cheating on him. He was like sitting outside the grocery store in his car, a police car pull up, and then he sees the boy on the motorcycle flee. He says the two police officers proceeded to beat the shit out of the other two boys and throw them in the back of the police car. So then Crook tells his customer like, hey, you need to go report this. Like, those boys just died down at the track that could be related. So he goes down to the sheriff's office, tells him his statement, what he saw, is thrown in jail by the sheriff himself for back child support. He's kept there for 90 days, leaves town immediately after. What the hell? Yeah. So Mike Crook, he would never release this guy's name. People are like, what What was his name? What was his name? He's like, I am not telling you this guy's name because this guy's like afraid for his life. So police always assumed that this guy was the same guy that I'm about to tell you about, which this is easily something they could fact check just by being like, who did we throw in jail that night for, you know, back child support? And is it this guy? And if not, like, you can know that this is the guy or this isn't the guy. Okay, so there's a second guy. His name's Ronnie Goodwin. He was at Gigi's the night that the boys were murdered. And after having seven or eight beers, he gets in his car and is driving home. And he sees like an unmarked police car. And he thinks it's like a detective's car. So he is supposed to turn left, I think, on Shobe Road. And he decides to go straight instead because he doesn't want to get another DWI. He says, quote, when I drove by the store, this is like a grocery store, like a convenience store kind of. Mm-hmm. And this is where the boys were hanging out when Kevin gets like flees from police. And they get picked up from police. Yeah. And this is like the second person who's at this store who sees this. Okay. So he says, quote, when I drove by the store, I saw two cops with two boys. My first thought was the police had caught them breaking into the store. 
One of the boys was taller and heavier set with light-colored hair. This boy was shoved up against the phone booth by the larger cop. The other boy was on the ground outside the passenger side of the unmarked car on his knees with his head down. He was not moving. The smaller cop with khaki-colored shirt picked up the boy and threw him in the backseat of the car. The larger cop hit the boy at the phone booth in the head with the phone receiver. The boy was not resisting. They went, the boy went down when he was hit and the cop picked him up and threw him in the back seat of the car also. The smaller cop was then looking around. The cop by the phone booth picked up a 22 caliber rifle and threw it in the car with the boys. He then stated that the boys drove up a hill towards a dead end, or I'm sorry, the cops drove up a hill towards a dead end, looked like they turned left, were there for about 10 minutes, and he waited because he was like, oh, they have to come back down, like that's a dead end. They came back down the hill and he said something looking like a garbage bag was slapping against the window in the back seat because like the window in the front seat was open or something. So he saw something like a garbage bag slapping against the window. Is it weird to say that this could be a tarp? I was going to say, was it a green tarp? Yeah, was it a green tarp? Possibly. So then after they come back down, they turn towards Show Road and don't come back. And he says he also notices another car nearby, which could be the guy's customer. Mm-hmm. Um, he estimates that this takes place around 2 a.m. Okay. So he gives his plate. He gives this statement to police during the investigation. 11 years later, his statement was the same when this girl, this girl had been appointed like the, um, like the drug task enforcement lead or something. And so she's trying to figure out what's going on in this town. And she interviews him 11 years later, statements exactly the same, but there's a state police report from like when the incident happened that says they interviewed, Ronnie's like mom, his girlfriend, and I think his sister. And they say like, they, yeah, they said like, he's not reliable. He, when he drinks, he lies and he exaggerates and da, 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 da. And then she goes to talk to them and they're like, we never talked to anybody. That means state troopers are falsifying reports. If this is to be believed. Right. Okay. Fast forward 1993. We're going to go back, but this is just like another thing. One of Kevin's friends comes to Linda, his mom. And says, like, hey, I know this boy who he has a story that he has been too afraid to tell. And I think, like, he might finally come clean if he talks to you. So she agrees to see him, whatever. He basically says he and some of his friends were goofing off down by the tracks looking for, like, marijuana plants. Like, they're 12 at this point. Okay? Okay. So they're young kids. Again, summer, whatever. Him and his friends see a light. And then they see three men on the tracks. Then they see two other people approaching. And uh, the three men who are already on the tracks are trying to, like, call over the boys. They call them, like, teenage boys. They don't call them, like... He's very specific that the three men already on the tracks are, like, adults. Mm -hmm. And that the two coming over are... They're teenage young men or something like that. And he says, like, they seem hesitant, but they come over anyway. He hears what he thinks is a gunshot and sees a flash of light, but he kind of looks away because he's a 12-year-old kid. Well, in the flash of light in the middle of the darkness. Exactly. And they're not supposed to be there, like, you know. And so him and his friends, when they hear that, they take off. Okay? He also didn't want to bring this up because he recognized one of the men who was on the tracks, like one of the three. One of the men? Okay. He recognized one of the men. He, He... So... This guy was, like, kind of seeing his mom on and off. So he knows him. He identified him. And later when he comes forward, he passes polygraphs. He, like, does all these, like, recorded confessions. He – or not confessions, but, like, testimony or whatever. Statements. He's put in, like, protective custody, everything. He's a very reliable source. And he has identified this guy. I'll come back to this guy. (laughs) So, 1998, at this point, the families wanted to send the blood samples again 
to a different pathologist who they who was known for their work in like THC testing. Okay. Malik resisted and was like, I'm not sending the samples. You have to get a court order. So the family's like, fine, we'll get a court order. They get a court order. Malik still refuses. Well, what they do is they hold a press conference because the media is still interested in this case. This is how many years after? Five months. Oh, okay. Yeah, this so eight, it's no, no. This is like February of like '88. Okay, it's like you know half a year later. They hold a press conference because they're like the media cares about this, the police don't, the people care about this. Like we're gonna shed some light on every fucking obstacle that we've had to endure. Mm-hmm. So they say like like they share their concerns about Malik's rulings. They share their frustrations about local law enforcement. They lay it all out on the table. So the next day, Larry and Curtis, the dads. And their private investigator walk into Malik's office with cameras and journalists, whatever, and they demand that he sends the samples. And he's like, "Oh, of course, I'm a father myself. I can't he imagine." Sends the wrong samples. No. Oh, okay. So he does that. Then the journalists leave, and he has already promised to send the samples, so he has to. He invites them, the three men, into his office and say, "I need to show you something." He grabs two jars. He opens one of the jars, and like formaldehyde the smell just like permeates this office takes a pencil sticks it in the jar and is poking the object inside and he says that's part of your son's heart (gasps) what to uh don's dad did he beat him up well curtis don's dad didn't rise to the bait because this is what he tried to do with the autopsy photos he knew what he was playing at he knew it's an intimidation thing. Yeah. So he doesn't rise to it. And he goes, Jan, what's that? And points to the second jar. And Malik's pissed that he didn't get in his head. And so they leave. And he's like, um, you're going to spend... Probably isn't part of his heart either. I mean, Probably not. Maybe. It could be. It could not. It's like, like this is lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Malik tells the fathers, you're going to be spending a lot of money hiring quacks. And Curtis respo- responds... Don't worry, we've already heard the quack's opinion. Damn, Curtis. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Like this family just like They is, held their own. What's nice is they didn't turn against each other. They I didn't, kinda, yeah. I kind of thought that they would when you were saying it in the beginning. And like um, they really like just persisted. Like they're against, they're up against the government. Right. And like they're still fighting. Right. So it's just really like. I hope one day if I ever... Okay, nope, don't put that out there. If that ever happens to me, I think my parents would do the same. Okay, so February 88. The samples were reviewed by two toxicologists who specialize in the effects of THC and analyzing it. Marijuana. Of the marijuana plant. Okay, so one said he believed Malik must have been... Must have made a mistake when he said the two boys had lost consciousness due to, like, smoking. Because that doesn't happen. And he... (laughs) That's not true. <laughs> and he concluded by saying the report was very bizarre and he doesn't know who would agree with it. Oh, my God. He said, quote, I know of incidents where persons have smoked 21 marijuana cigarettes one right after the other. They become euphoric, but it doesn't make them unconscious. Adding further, when I see this kind of result, it's usually uh, from someone who doesn't know a damn thing about marijuana or the testing. Second one says the same thing. And um, he said, also, you would only get like the true confirmation of THC levels if you performed a mass spectrometry, spectrometry, I guess. It's like a type of testing. And they're like, there's no fucking way Malik did this. Yeah. So back to the families. 
So the day after the press conference happens, two people get in touch with the families, uh, Richard Garrett and Dan Harmon. Richard Garrett was a deputy prosecuting attorney who told Linda that he had no idea, like, the families were dissatisfied with the investigation and he wanted to help. And she knows he's an elected official and that's all bullshit, but she's like, hey, if it, you know, helps, it helps. Who cares if he gets reelected? And so... Uh, Dan Harmon was his law partner, and he plays a major fucking role in this case, okay? So remember him. Garrett is like, whatever. So Garrett and Harmon's first move was to arrange a deal between the family and the sheriff's department, which the family fucking hated. They were like, we do not want anything to do with them. But he kind of – Harmon says, like, look, sheriff's up for re-election. You don't know what you're going to get with the next one. If he agrees to help you, you have that. Who knows what the next one's going to say? So he's saying, like, take what you can get. He's basically saying, like, tell the media that you are okay with the police, but you don't like Malik, essentially. And the family fucking hates it. Linda refuses to read the statement. She's like, I'm not fucking reading this. And so uh, Kevin's dad does. And he basically says, like, we're upset with the crime lab. We're not upset with the sheriffs. They've been cooperative, da-da-da-da, whatever. So... Um, in return, Sheriff Steed requests assist- request assistance from the Arkansas State Police, and he also helped Garrett prepare for this, like, prosecutor's hearing, which was to see if they could get, like, a grand jury, I think, to reverse the accidental ruling and, like, the death. So Garrett is able to get the boys' bodies exhumed with, like, the information from the two pathologists. So they perform a second autopsy, which leads to the creation of, like, the grand jury, which is led by Dan Harmon. And he volunteers his services free, okay? And he says, like, I – he gets the judge to appoint him as the special special prosecutor so that he can supervise the investigation. So, like, they're fucking on top of this. Oh, so he's a good guy. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm kind of sick of hearing that you keep on bringing in people who are always bad. Right. They're on top of this. When they did the blood test, the pathologist agreed that the boys had smoked the equivalent of one to three joints between them, okay? And that Don had tears in his shirt resembling a knife wound and not, like, the impact of a train, and it also matched a wound on his back. They also said that Kevin's face had wounds that were consistent with being hit by a blunt object, like a rifle pre-mortem. Okay. Okay. Um, during the hearings, police officers, EMTs, and Malik were subpoenaed along with other people. Officers revealed that the night before the death, there was a super, uh, that the night before the death, there was a suspicious person call complaining about a man near the tracks who had jumped out of a car and pointed a pistol at another car. Um, this information, like all this information is enough for the grand jury to reverse the accidental death ruling and to probable homicides. And this is 1989. So a year after. Two. Two years after. Okay. So essentially that leads to another grand jury, which Harmon um, runs. And he subpoenas witnesses, local... Like, he gets a lot of people in on this. He's subpoenaing everybody. Okay. I'm going to start reading you people. This is important. Okay. Keith Coney. You remember him? Yeah, he's a friend. Okay. He was with the boys but took off in his motorcycle when police showed up at the gas station. So he said he was afraid for his life because he knew too much about the murders. Right. 
Uh, nine months after the boy's death, Coney was killed in a motorcycle accident. Uh, official report said that he ran his motorcycle into the back of a semi-truck and he was called to testify by Dan Harmon, but died before he could. Oh my God. Witnesses to the accident said that he was being chased and he also had several ru- several wounds that they don't believe were caused by the accident. Uh, most notably his throat being slashed. <gasps> Guess who uh, did his, who was his medical examiner? No! <laughs> fuck this dude! <laughs> but he's dead, right? Doesn't matter. He died last year of natural causes. No! <laughs> I bet he retired at like 65. But I feel a little bit safer knowing that he's dead. <laughs> yeah, but like his family's out there. That's true. He ruined lives. A lot of lives. Okay. Greg- and pretended to have his, a man's Son's dead heart. Right. Yeah, he is definitely a narcissist. Dead son's heart. Yeah, he's definitely a narcissist. Everything I read is he just he gets mad when people question him. He gets belligerent. He like it. It's bad. Like he is a narcissist, and right. he believes he knows everything. All right, Gregory Collins, January nineteen eighty nine, died from three gunshots to the front. Who was this guy? I'll tell you. Okay. One of which was to the face. Shotgun shots. Okay. Two in the chest, one to the face. Um, he was called to testify because he was believed to know something about the deaths. And um, before he died, Garrett and Harmon had questioned him in private. Okay. Malik ruled this a suicide, even though... <laughs> yeah, shot in the face. And with a shotgun. Shotgun. Shoot yourself in the face. Shoot yourself in the chest once with a shotgun. Do you have enough... Force right there. Emo- like, do you have enough energy to then do it again? To the chest and then and last again, again. to the well, no, face. No, you have to consider that a shot is a exactly thing is this big and it spreads. Right. Well, no, not at that close range, but no, no, no. Shock, those kind of shotguns. Those are only specific guns. Those are duck hunting guns. Shotguns are like their shells are this big and they're just one big. Oh. So that's why you have to cock it every time and it flies out. Oh. Well, he. He was like. <laughs> so did he reload like, his gun? There's just no way. No, the 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 kickback from a shotgun is something that like I could barely handle. And he's but, and doing he's it. Shooting it out. He couldn't shoot himself. Yeah. With man, it's impossible. Unless, <laughs> he, unless he goes under his head. Nope. Face, yeah. chest. Okay. Malik rolls it a suicide. Daniel Booney Bearden. Six weeks after the previous guy I just you talked about. <laughs> Police found his body in the forest. He had been a missing person for eight months, and he was called to testify in the case because it was believed that he was a middleman in the drug. Like, local drug ring. Oh, my God. Okay. James Millam. You might remember him. He also had info about the boy's death, scheduled to testify. He was found decapitated. Malik ruled it death by an ulcer. Remember that one? With a dog? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's him. Um, so, he said the dog ate the head, um, but it doesn't make sense because then the dog, the then police the found the head. head. He said the, the dog vomited the head up. Oh my god. What size is the dog? A tiger size? I don't know. And also, hang on, hang on. When you eat something, it doesn't come out whole. (laughs) No, and also, like, your body, like, like, destroys Yeah. The acid in your stomach. Like, I don't even think a bear could. Like, it had to be, like, right away. And also, animals go for soft tissue, not. Not the head. Yeah. Also, they wouldn't cut it off. And a clean slice? Oh, my and God. Oh. And they'd be like, okay, no, never mind. <laughs> Poor dog. Yeah, it probably got put down. Because, like, once, like, 
once animals have like human flesh, they always put them down. Yeah. Okay. So that's James Millam. So what about Avery's cat? If Avery's cat took a bite of you. She'd definitely eat like... He. He. Sorry. He'd <laughs> definitely eat like maybe my upper arms because there's like soft tissue there. Right. There's not a lot of muscle here. No, he's already not. He's bit you. Oh, he went for my arm. Yeah, but yeah he bit me too, though. So... You, but I'm also going... I'm also like... You want to fuck? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Richard Winters. At one point, a suspect... But he offered to cooperate with the grand jury. But before he could, he was killed by a shotgun blast to the face during a robbery. No one believes this was really a robbery. <laughs> they took nothing. <laughs> oh, they all had the same MO. Yeah. Like, two of them had the same MO. Shotgun to the face? <laughs> so was I. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this one's fucked. This is Keith McCaskill, who's going to remember him. He's going to be like... Oh, he's not the he, I haven't told him anything there's yet. Two yeah, there's two Keiths. Okay. I haven't said anything about him yet, but he's going to be important later. So he was going around telling people that he knew he was going to be murdered. He was telling friends goodbye, telling family goodbye. He was arranging his funeral. Okay. Um, He said he was being followed by police officers. He would point out vehicles that were following him. Um, On the night of the 1988 sheriff's election, he was at a bar. He threw like two pennies down on the bar. And he said, if Jim Steed wins this election, my life isn't worth two cents. He was killed 48 hours later. Jim C. didn't win the election, but still killed 48 hours later. Um, Harmon, he basically, Harmon had told the boys, Harmon is the guy that we're talking about. Yeah. He had told the boys' parents that McCaskill was an informant on the case because he was a local bartender and also I think he was a meth dealer. And he was like their informant and he was taking... um, aerial pictures of the crime scene for the sheriff's office. He was like in this case. Um, at 1.30 a.m., a neighbor told police he heard loud, loud groaning coming from McCaskill's place, but he looked out the window and didn't see anything. The next morning, a woman comes to his house. I think it was like his girlfriend or some girl he was seeing. And she discovers him wrapped in a shower curtain and he was covered in blood. The house was covered in blood and he was stabbed over a hundred times. All above the waist, mostly to the hands and arms. Like he was defensive, defensive wounds. wounds. He was a bartender. He was known for like breaking up fights. He would get in the middle of a fight with like two knives and he would have no weapons. Like he was not afraid of anything. So he's dead. So then there's Ronald Smith. He was McCaskill's neighbor. Okay. Ronald's father, when police show up, he's like, hey, I think you should talk to my son. I think he might know something. And so Ronald is 19. He's kind of slow. Like he's probably got a low IQ, but it's Arkansas. I don't know. Like, you know, he's just kind of stupid. And he tells them he was over at McCaskill's. He was going to buy a silver tray for his mom. And then he was buying like porno for him, which is a weird combination, but whatever. He was also paying him some money he owed him. And he said McCaskill was acting weird and saying people were following him, looking out the windows, same stuff that everyone else said he was doing. Then he says three men burst through the door wearing clown masks, which is terrifying. Someone burst through that door right now wearing oh, clown masks. Yeah. Okay, I have to sleep. That's true. I don't. <laughs> um, well, we have to drive. <laughs> yeah, that's There's a clown in your back seat. No, I'm not saying that, but I mean, you're talking about people like, getting followed. Yeah, yeah. That's true. 
Um, so he said two of the men had knives, one had a gun. The one with the gun forces Ronald into a chair and a fight breaks out between McCaskill and the other two men with the knives. Um, he said later that the gunman takes him outside, but he could still hear McCaskill struggling inside. Um, at one point they give the gun or I'm sorry, they give a knife to Ronald and they say, if you don't stab McCaskill, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And then they took a picture of him doing it or a Polaroid or something. And they said, this is black. Like they held it up. This is blackmail. And then they left. Um, so there's no evidence that they really took anything, but there was a briefcase that was covered in blood, which um, people assume were the aerial photos that he was taking for the governor or I'm sorry, the sheriff's office. And also it was rumor that he had been recording tapes of what he knew about the case because he knew he was going to die. Oh shit! And okay. that was never found. So, um, they found bloody clothes, the silver tray, and videotapes out behind Ronald's house, and he ends up being convicted of this murder. 19-year-old, mentally challenged boy. 100 times stabbed. Grown-ass man. Jeff Rhodes. Murdered in 1989. Uh, Before his death, he called his dad in Texas and said, like, hey, I need to get out of Arkansas because I know too much about these murders. Like, can you help find me a job down there? And a few weeks later, Rhodes was found shot in the head. Someone had also attempted to cut off his hands and feet and his head, and then they set him on fire. My God. Like, why are you waiting to get a job? Yeah, just leave. Yeah. Um, They found his body in a landfill. Um, Rhodes' dad, he, like, calls police and he tells them, like, what he said, but the police never followed up with him. Well, also, the police probably did it. Yeah, of course. All right, Jordan Kettleston, (laughs) believed to have been an informant on the boys' murders and then also believed to actually be involved in McCaskill's murder, the really brutal one. Yeah. Um, He was found dead in his truck in 1990, and there was no police investigation, and the body was cremated before an autopsy could be performed. All right, so I'm going to go back. Remember how I was telling you about that little boy who recognized, yeah, who yeah. recognized the man on the tracks. Who do you think it was? Bill Clinton. <laughs> well, now I don't know. You put Bill Clinton into my head. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, she was the governor already. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it was Dan Harmon. Oh, the guy, the good guy? If I could describe Avery's face right now. She's taking off her makeup. She stopped mid-wipe. So was that the, <laughs> was that the good guy? The prosecutor? Yeah. yeah. The 12-year-old. Yeah. So he grew up and he was like, I want to work on this case. No, 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 no. The 12-year-old saw the prosecutor on the tracks. Oh. Okay, no, no, that's not how I took it. I took it as no. the 12-year-old grew up to be dead. No. <laughs> right, that's I took it. no, this is not one of those memes where it's like Beyonce <laughs> encountered a boy. That and was Hillary Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> no. The 12-year-old boy saw Dan Harmon, who his mom was seeing, on the tracks, placed him on the tracks with the boys. Oh, no, so he's not a good guy. No, you asked me that, and I didn't know how to lie and also not lie. And I was just like, yeah, he's a good guy. Because I didn't want to ruin it for you and be like, is he? Okay. So, to get into... Dan Harmon, you have to talk about this girl who he was dating, not the little boy's mom. He was a player. 
Uh, he was dating this woman named Charlene Wilson, and she dated Dan Harmon on and off around the time of the boys' deaths, even though he was married. Keep that in mind. In an unrelated uh, grand jury, she testified to having gotten high with Harmon on multiple occasions, and she said, um, after she said this, the police get involved because they're like, we need to know more about drugs in this area. We want to know if he knows anything about, like, they are questioning her. They're like, we might have something here. Because finally, the blame's not being put on them. It's being put on somebody else. So police question her, and she says that Dan kept her high a lot and would sometimes have her go on various drug drops. She said that he would confiscate drugs or, um, like, paraphernalia to use or sell and, like, without reporting them to police and that he would get drug dealers out of their charges. Basically, she advised police, if you want to catch him, look through his financial records, look through his past clientele, who he's gotten off. Yeah. Okay. When she asked about the boys' deaths, when asked about the boys' deaths, she said that Dan Harmon knew a lot more than he let on, and she remembers going to Alexander, Arkansas in August of uh, 87. She says one time they drove to Alexander, and he asked her to pull down a side road and to wait in the car. She waits in the car, gets high, and then he comes running back shouting, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. So they drive back home. We're back to her house and he demands like take a shower take a shower and like took her clothes from her everything so by 1993 dan Harmon is awaiting a trial on drug related charges so she's feeling like, like he is he, he is for yes okay. yes so she's feeling like a little bit safer right. to maybe talk about this stuff and um she says that while she was with dan and the other man she says that she was with Dan and another man the night the boys were killed, that they went on the tracks and were met by two other men who were annoyed because some of the kids had tried to, like, rip off a drug deal, right. like some local kids. Um, they were expecting to get three to four pounds of coke and five pounds of marijuana, like, at this drug drop. The boys who tried to rip them off had run away, but two of them were caught and dragged back by the two men who were already on the tracks. Um... She says when the boys were brought back, one of them was already dead. That's what she claims. Uh, she claims that the How other... She, she was there. Oh, she was there. She was one of them there. Oh. So she claims that the other man she was with was Keith McCaskill. The guy who died. Yeah. So she's saying what she's essentially saying. It's her, Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, and two police officers. Okay. Those are the five on the track. They bring back the boys. One's already dead. So, in one confession, she says that Keith McCaskill killed the other boy. Um, this you have to take with a grain of salt because she gave, like, her story varied sometimes. The second time she said it, she told police that she was actually, she stabbed one of the boys because they wanted her, if she stabbed them, she's no longer just an accomplice. She's like an active participant. Right. So she, they have her stab him, and that would match up to with the stab wound on Don's back. So she makes her confession in 93, and nothing happens. The paperwork gets kind of, like, lost in all the evidence. No one reads it again until 2015. Um, so in 1992, she was convicted of her first-time drug offense. So she was caught with, I don't know how much, but a small amount of drugs, and I think she had maybe some weapons on her. So it's drugs and arms. 
Guess who prosecuted her? Dan Harmon. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Dan Harmon, which is a conflict of interest. Yeah. This is his ex-girlfriend. Well, and in, in 92, or was it in This is before. He was under yeah. Drug she's, like, talking while she's in jail. Gotcha. So, he, uh, he offers her a plea bargain of, guess how many years, if she pleads guilty? Four years. 116. For drugs and... First time drug offense. So, that doesn't make sense, though. Just literally trying to be a dick. So she... Well, 116 years. That's oh, five. That, not even that. That doesn't make sense because... That's not a plea bargain. And 116 years is almost impossible to get even for murder. For rape, you don't get 116 years. No. Especially not a first-time non-violent yeah. drug offense. Right. Basically, he kind of did this. He hears that she's talking to police, I think. Maybe she was making statements a little bit before... This happened, and he is annoyed about this. He doesn't want to get caught. So he, it's assumed that he planted these drugs on her or he told police to go and that he could, they'd find her with the drugs, whatever. So um, she pled, I don't know what she pled, but she did not take the plea bargain. And <laughs> I can't remember, there's not a lot of information. Like she is fairly private. Like she, you can't track her down. Um, so she tells him to fuck off after he offers her 116 years. Right. And she ends up getting 31. Okay, not bad. For a first-time drug offense? It's, it's bad, but it's not 116. <laughs> <laughs> well, in 1999, Mike Huckabee, he's oh, the governor at the time. He's the governor at wait, the time. Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yes. Yeah. Mike Huckabee is the governor of Arkansas at this time. He reduces her sentence, which makes her eligible for parole, and she is granted parole. So she gets out. Okay. I know. I was a little bit shocked. He's the hero of the story. He's like the first good guy. Imagine how bad the story is. Mike Huckabee is the best one. He's the hero. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. It's rough. Yeah. Okay. Um, Also, Linda and like. The, the, the dad who was just like, you're the quack or something. Like, yeah. So good. And the train conductors. Oh, yeah. And the EMTs. Yeah. Okay, so there are some good people. Yeah, that they're just like, what the fuck the entire time. Yeah. Just like us. All right, fun fact. This doesn't have anything to do with it, but it's really interesting. Charlene, uh, she was also the ex of a convicted drug felon, Roger Clinton, half-brother of Bill Clinton. He's a convicted drug felon? How did this man become president? He played the saxophone. <laughs> okay, back to the grand jury. Did you forget who the president is, right? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> How did Bill Clinton become president? How did Donald? Yeah, but, but I guess there wasn't as much. Yeah, okay. It wasn't yeah, normal for a president to have been. Also, there was, no, yeah. but it also wasn't like as publicized back then. Too, but I don't think he's like he's gone into bankruptcy. Sure, he's been sued over businesses. He's never had like his mother be sued over malpractice. Her his brother be like. I think maybe well, he, he hasn't. We- personally sued for having a fake uni- university. He's in okay. Yeah, 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 right, right. So it's exactly yeah. the same amount of car. Right, right, right. I think maybe it's just we were younger in the nineties and, and we just don't remember. I exactly. Think that's why I remember. I I look at Bill Clinton. Like, when I was a kid, I remember him being like, 
amazing. Yeah. Because I was like, gun like a budding Democrat. And <laughs> loved him and like presidents are great. Presidents are amazing. It's they a, know right yeah, from wrong. Anyone can be president. That kind of stuff. And yeah. Now I'm looking at it and I'm like. <sighs> okay grand jury okay Harmon's still running it so we're back in like 89 i think 90 um he's using this grand jury as a way to figure out like who knows what he's got access to all the evidence he's able to twist the stories and anytime someone comes out against him he says well they're just doing this because i called them to testify and they're this is revenge this is like them saying, like, they're trying to get back at me. Right. Obviously, this isn't who I am. Um, and then, basically, he's still, like, running this. It never really, like, goes anywhere because people keep fucking dying. Right. Okay, also, <laughs> like, um, I talked about this girl, Jean Duffy, who became, like, the lead of the drug enforcement mm-hmm. area. She... Basically, when she was hired, it was unofficially said that she should not look into Dan Harmon or the local police for any drug-related offenses. And she was like, that's weird. Um, and she, she started looking into it. She no. Mm-hmm. So she kind of realized what was going on and that there was a conspiracy here. Well, it's not really a conspiracy because it probably happened. And um, so... When Harmon finds out that she's, like, researching him, he becomes, like, aggressive and he leads, like, a smear campaign against her, accusing her of embellishment. (laughs) (laughs) We literally have, like, not even a paragraph left. Harmon becomes aggressive and leads a smear campaign against her in the media, accusing her of embezzlement and child abuse because she's, like, looking into him. And he tries to subpoena her to find out, like, who her informants are because he wants to know, like, what's going on? Am I going to be whatever? And she refuses. And she's like, you can't fucking do that. No way. And then one of her informants tells her, yeah, he expects you to do that because you will go to jail for failing to appear in court after being subpoenaed. And he plans to have you killed in jail. <gasps> That's what one of her informants said. So she gets out of town. And, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she like pieces out, goes Calls into like hiding. The, the manager of Abercrombie. <laughs> like, hey, can I get a job in three weeks? Yeah. Tomorrow. Literally. Like she's not she wasting any time. She gets out. Yeah. She fears for her life. Um, okay, so 90, 1997, Dan Harmon is found guilty of five of 11 federal charges, including racketeering, extortion, and possession with intent to distribute. He gets 10 years, serves nine. So it's pretty good. Wait, so he's out right now? Well, so he gets out of jail, and then a few years later, in 2010, he gets arrested on felony drug charges, but there wasn't a lot of evidence, so he gets acquitted. Okay. So he's out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine. Everybody else already has. Um, have they said this much about Dan Harmon? Yes, of course. Oh, Fuck okay. Dan Harmon. I'll say it to his face. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So it's like a the creator of some television show. <gasps> that's what I'm thinking. I even but that's not, not him. That's, Dan Harmon, that's not him. Isn't that like uh, the Game of Thrones? 
No, how dare you? That's Amy Sherman Palladino. Oh, really? Yeah, he created community. Okay, well, this is not the same guy. That and Rick and Morty. That is an inconvenient name. Yeah. Tie, yeah. They're not the same guy. Okay. Nobody fear. (laughs) What if he stole his, like, identity, but he just, like, kept his name? He's like, yeah, I'm a different guy. So, what's going on with the family? What's going on with the town? Right. They still don't have any answers. The case is still open. It's unsolved. They are still dissatisfied with the local police and their investigation, and they are still fighting for justice for their sons. They, The local police is now led by a guy named Rodney White, who is related to who? Jack White of the White Stripes. Dan Harmon. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Jack White was actually yeah, was right. the closest guest I've made. <laughs> um, it's Dan Harmon's Benny nephew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Benny White's so much better than Jack White. <laughs> Betty White is like more universal. Yeah. Um, so Rodney White is Dan Harmon's nephew, and he's the local sheriff now. That's currently. Uh, as of like a few years ago, yeah. Ugh. Fuck these people. Well, I'm never going to Boston. Yeah, I'm never going to Arkansas. Are you kidding me? Yeah. What's in Arkansas? Table Rock. What's Table, Table Rock? Lake. It's not in Arkansas. It's in Missouri. I think it's in both. Well, don't go to the Arkansas side. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Uh, Linda, let's get back to her, our shining star. She has been filing suits against the government, like multiple government agencies uh, for not complying with her Freedom of Information Act requests about like she wants information on the case and yada, yada. And the government's refusing to hand over the information about her son's death because they say it's an ongoing investigation. But she's still out there fighting the good fight. Um. So here, quick recap is what I think happened. The boys went out to try and steal some drugs that were dropped off a plane or a train or something, and they get caught. I think their friend Keith is with them. They run off, and they end up at that local grocery store where I think then the two police officers who were already on the track find them. Keith escapes or flees on his motorcycle. The police beat the two boys. I think maybe when the other one beat... uh, I think it was Don who might have been up against the telephone booth when they hit him in the head. Or it might have been Kevin because he's the one with bone force trauma. When they hit Kevin with the phone receiver, I think that might have been like a – I don't know if maybe that killed him or knocked him unconscious. I think one of them probably was dead when they got pulled back. Um, I think the cops pulled them back. I think maybe Sherry did stab one of them because it marks up with the stab wound on the back. I think she was also fucking high and maybe didn't know what she was talking about. Right. Um, and then I think that they placed them on the track with a tarp who was maybe that tarp was owned by one of them and is why they never admitted it into evidence. Oh. Oh, so they probably... And I think it was probably meant to like completely cover them to where they wouldn't know ahead of time that it was bodies. Right. And I think it blew off a little bit. And then when that happened, they recovered the tarp and were like, oh, this is actually my buddy so-and-so. So so I'm going to take this and not admit it into evidence. And that might have happened with the same – remember Kevin – no, sorry. Don's dad gave over pieces of a gun. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was pieces of somebody else's gun because they saw a gunshot or they heard a gunshot and saw a flash of light. And I think Dan Harmon was involved, obviously, and he inserted himself into this case 
because he thought he was like the all-powerful. I think he was probably the um, ultimate drug dealer that the boys were talking about. Oh. Because it's yeah. everyone kind of assumes he was like the, I guess he would be a middleman between the drugs coming up from Central America to the mid-level drug dealers around Little Rock. Mm-hmm. So I think he was like the, I guess, kingpin in Little Rock. Okay. And I think that's what happened. Is that they were caught, one was already killed, so they couldn't do anything else, so they killed the boys. Fuck. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to part two. <laughs> boys on the track. <laughs> How long is it? Two hours. Oh dang. Yeah. I'm sorry I tried. No. There's a lot of information. No, a lot of information. I get it. So we will be back next week. With the beginning of our three, spooky season. On the track. Yeah. <laughs> three. Bill Clinton returns. <laughs> with our October, which will be all paranormal shit. Is that what we're doing? Uh, I decided we are. <laughs> <laughs> you may do some murder related, but okay. I was doing paranormal. Well. Thanks for see. listening, kids. Bye. Stay off the tracks. Seriously, stay <laughs> off the tracks. And don't be with people named Dan. <laughs> Bye.